This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners. Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities sure to pique your curiosity. We are Amanda and Brittany. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, girl, hey. (laughs) (laughs) We're on episode 25. 25. We are midlife. (laughs) God. Halfway to 50. We're already halfway to 50. Uh, We're out of youth. Shut up. <laughs> it's Prolific Serial Killers Part 2. Yeah. And it's hump day. Hump day. Wednesday. Ah, hump day treats. Love them. Okay. Miss Brittany, what did you bring for us tonight? <laughs> we did something a little bit different today. I freaking love it. So, currently, like up till now, rather, all of our hump day treats have been edible or drinkable. Mm-hmm. But... A treat is not necessarily something you can eat or drink. That's right. So today we treated our skin with some face masks. Oh my God, my face feels like a baby butt. <laughs> it's so nice. Yeah, it is. It was not cute. The process was not cute. <laughs> <laughs> we took videos. You'll see the videos. Yeah. It, it wasn't cute. But our face is all smooth and our pores are clog free. Mm-hmm. It's delightful. And then, of course, we got wine, too, because oh, I that's threw, just what we do. I threw away the packages. She got us some peel-off masks. <laughs> oh, um, they're K-Bella is the brand. Okay. But there was a blueberry... Uh, there was a blueberry toning mask. That's the one I did. Yeah. And you did, like, the strawberry... Um, was it the restorative mask? Yeah. Something like that. Something. It was strawberry. You'll see it in the pictures. But they smell so good. And they peel off like a giant piece of snake skin. Thank you, Target. Yes. Yeah, if you like to peel sunburns, that was awesome. It even makes the sound. Yeah, it did. The sunburn sound. (laughs) If you're weird like us, you know what we're talking about. Yeah, it was perfect. And then barefoot red Moscato, because barefoot is always... I think it's our jam. It's always a good option because it's seven dollars. Yeah, six winner winner. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how we do things. So yeah, happy hump day. Treat your skin. Treat yourself. And let's see. This is Amanda's episode. Yeah, it is. I'm super excited. <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to prepare myself, and I feel awkward. I don't know what to do with myself. I know you're just gonna get to sit back and relax the whole time. It's weird. And I'm going to chop. The whole entire time. <laughs> so. You look scared. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all get ready for that. <laughs> We're so excited. I am really excited. It's a good one. Pop on over to our Facebook and Instagram pages on Oddities and Curiosities Podcasts and Oddities and Curiosities Pod. Go look at the photos that I'm about to tell you about. Yes, you want to do that. It makes the story so much better when you have faces for names. Mm-hmm. You'll get to see what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. There's so, cool shit on there. So go do that. There's a lot of cool shit on there. Mm-hmm. Everything is cool. Yeah. We're cool people. Yeah. We put up cool things. I love all y'all's guesses this week. 
<laughs> when I post it. Okay, because we usually tell each other what the hump day treat is going to be, but this week she would not tell me, and it was driving me insane. So I had to make a post <laughs> about it because all she would tell me is that I couldn't wear makeup, nightmare, and <laughs> I had to pull my hair back, and there's going to be photos. So I was freaking out i'm like are we bobbing for apples y'all when i got here she had makeup on she <laughs> well, had to go had wash her makeup face on from the day i was like <laughs> it's waterproof i mean really what damage can be done she's like no bitch you just freaking ruined it because i got these and she like whips them out of her purse and throws them down on the table oh sometimes i'm dramatic so i said yes ma'am i'll go wash my face <laughs> <laughs> aren't you glad you did yeah because it feels like a baby's butt now <laughs> she said feel my cheek you want to feel I my did. no she said you want to feel my baby butt that's what she said <laughs> and so i did soft. i did want to yeah hers feels the same way we were both sitting there rubbing on each other's cheeks it got weird <laughs> get you a friend you can be weird with yeah makes life way more better ow (laughs) my ears i know (laughs) it's way more better guys way more funner ah did you know that recently they they turned funner into a word shut up yeah no i'm not kidding what is wrong with the universe funner is a word now oh my god you can you can juggle it i can't Mm -hmm. i can't have you ever seen the movie idiocracy Uh uh-uh that's where the world's going Look it up this weekend. Okay. And watch Idiocracy. Okay. Well, you got to give me a little synopsis. I mean, what? what it's why? got um, that Wilson boy in it. Owen? Luke. 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 Oh, hey. And like, so I've only seen it twice. And I don't remember how, but he gets, I think he gets frozen or something and wakes up in the future. Oh, okay. And everybody's stupid. Because all the stupid people were procreating and the smart people were waiting till later to have kids and then not being fertile because they waited so late. And so like all these idiots are procreating, making idiot babies and the world is full of dumbasses (laughs) and like, it's kind of a stupid movie, but the concept is like, whoa. Okay. Yeah. Intriguing. Yeah. It I'm I'm gonna watch that. Best watched under the influence. Doesn't It'll matter make it, what the influence should be. You know what the influence should be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it makes it more funnier. Ten four loud and clear. More funner. <laughs> more funner. More better and more funner. Uh, okay. 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 So y'all have heard me talk about him before. And he's my new favorite. For sure. Faux show. Faux show. <laughs> I want him a mouth. <laughs> I'm sorry, I interrupted your swallow. Okay? You, inter- you interrupted my swallow. <laughs> I'm talking about Egg Kemper. You're welcome. <laughs> hey, it's okay. It's okay. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. Edmund Emil Kemper the third also known as the co-ed killer, is an American serial killer who was active in the early 1970s, standing at six foot nine and weighing nearly 300 pounds. Sound like you're doing a wrestling thing. <laughs> <laughs> in this corner. <laughs> I mean, I've done it before. Should I do it again? 
standing at six foot nine and weighing nearly 300 pounds. Kimper has definitely made his mark in the criminal world and is quite possibly the most polite one you could ever meet. <laughs> Edmund, the co-ed killer, Kemper! <laughs> yeah! <sighs> and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> Would you like to see a picture of sweet little Edmund Kemper? But of course. Okay. We'll go to the notes. Okay. Edmund. Edmund. Mm-hmm. Well, he's got the glasses. He's got the glasses. He's got the stash. I was just fixing to say the porn star stash. <laughs> yeah, he's got it all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. A little side swoop in the hair going on. Right? Okay. Pretty serial killer looking. He, he's he nailed it. Mm-hmm. He started his criminal life as a teenager by shooting both his grandparents while staying on their 17-acre ranch in North Fork, California. Kemper later killed and dismembered six female hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz, California area. And finally, he murdered his mommy and one of her friends, I think it was her bestie, before turning himself into the authorities. So let's get started, shall we? Yes, we shall. Diving headfirst into this one. Okay. On August 27th, 1964, 15-year-old Ed was with his paternal grandparents on their 17-acre ranch in North Fork, California. He went during the previous Christmas holidays and stayed for the rest of the school year before returning to his mother for a few weeks during the summer. And now he was back. But he wasn't happy about it. And his demeanor was different. Like, almost scary. He really hated the ranch. Like, that... I, I loved going to my grandmother's farm. That was that's my happy place. But he hated it. Already six foot six foot four and socially awkward, he was intimidating, and people tended to shuffle him from one place to the other. He was sick and tired of all the BS, and later described himself as a walking time bomb. Mm. If only someone had known then how to diffuse his rage. Instead, the people around him seemed to ensure that it would grow worse. I have a picture of little Edmund at age 15. Okay. Okay. Look at his little baby face. I know, but he got his kit early because he's already got the glasses. Yeah. And that's um pretty mullety. We're getting pretty mullety with the hairdo. I mean, the, the look on his face, though, is like, fuck this shit. <laughs> I have no time I for you. I hate it here. Yes. I am not happy. Yeah. He has no time for anybody. No, he's got RBF going on. Yeah. Kemper hated how his mother treated him and his grandmother was just as bad. They were always pushing him around and telling him what to do. According to his own statements, he harbored fantasies of killing and mutilating them. He said he knew at eight years old that he was going to kill his mother. Wow. One day. He didn't know when. But it wasn't just them. As a kid... Kemper wished that everyone else in the world would die, too, and he envisioned killing many of them himself. He had also indulged in tormenting cats. He buried one alive, then dug it up, cut off its head, and stuck the head on a stick in the yard. Wasn't there somebody else that did that? One of your guys? Stuck a head on a stick in the yard? Mm Mm-hmm. An animal? It sounds familiar. I can't remember who that was. I think it was Jeffrey Dahmer. Was it Dahmer? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think it, I think it was too. Yeah. Okay. 
He didn't care who saw it. And I mean, who doesn't love a good kebab, right? <laughs> I can't with you. <laughs> <laughs> he started with insects and birds, then moved to cats, then eventually came humans. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. So the progression. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That August afternoon, on the 27th, he argued in the kitchen with his 66-year-old grandmother, Maud. A psychiatrist who interviewed Ed said that he had shifted his anger for his mom towards Maud, so it didn't take him much to react. Maud. I know. <laughs> <laughs> she was a nagger, though. Yeah, she nagged him a lot. She was an author, mostly of children's books, so she was often home. That afternoon, she was finishing up an article for a Boy Scout magazine. He was on his way out the door when she barked at him to not go killing any more birds. It pissed him the fuck off. He just wanted to shoot the birds. I mean, maybe she should have let him go shoot the birds. Maybe. Because, enraged, Kemper grabbed his rifle, turned and shot her instead. First in the back of the head, then shot her twice in the back. Then he dragged her to the bedroom. But just to make sure that he was that she was dead, he stabbed her repeatedly with a kitchen knife. That's not rage. <laughs> That's not overkill. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, there's other ways to make sure that people are dead. <laughs> <laughs> like check their poles? Yeah, that's a start. I mean, that's where I would start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you could like put the mirror over their mouth. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That's a thing. That those were my thoughts as well. <laughs> but you know, this was his first killing and it was impulsive and it was more of a thoughtless act than a planned predatory incident. But then he had to do something to hide it from his grandfather. He was a big kid for his age, the product of a six foot mother and a father who was six foot eight. Where are all these tall people hiding? Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, he did not have much difficulty dragging his grandmother's corpse into the bedroom. But then his grandfather, also named Edmund, uh, he was Edmund the First. Because his dad, like all of them, Edmund. That's gross. Yeah. He was like, don't call me Edmund. That's that's my mom's idea. Call me Ed. (laughs) Yeah. Y'all don't do that. Don't do that to your kids. Mm. Unless you got money. No. It's still not cool. I don't know for them it is it's a thing it's a, it's a thing it's not a cool thing no nah. your kid's gonna get picked on <laughs> i mean it was the 70s <laughs> I can't. okay so his grandfather drove up after doing some grocery shopping the man was 72 and it was he who had given Edmund, the twenty-two caliber caliber rifle. Mm. Yeah, the previous Christmas, young Edmund heard his car outside. He went to the window and made the decision to finish the job he'd begun. As the elderly man got out of the car and turned to grab the bags, Kemper raised the rifle and shot him as well. That's so sad. I mean, it's all sad, but mm-hmm. he then hid his body in the garage. I have a picture of Grandmommy and Granddaddy. Okay. There's Edmund and Maud. Well, look how cute they were. I know. Aren't they precious? Yeah. I don't know. She she kind of has a, like, I'm over it look as well. That's probably where he gets it from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I have a feeling that that, those genes uh, run deep. Yeah. So, all right. So there he was, 15, and all alone at the ranch. He began to get paranoid. People were going to find out. He thought that they might possibly already know. Like, as soon as he did it, he was like, oh, my God, the world knows. Holy shit, what am I going to do? He was worried that everyone was coming to get him. He said that he knew that if he didn't do something about it, that he would end up going on a killing rampage on anyone he came in contact with just because of his extreme paranoia. So, not knowing what else to do, he called his mom in Montana and told her what he had done. Her name's Clarnell. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, Clarnell urged him to call the police, and no doubt she was thinking of the dire warning she had given Edmund's biological father, whose parents were now dead. She had told him not to be surprised if the boy killed them one day. Wow. Like, he kind of freaked everyone out. There there was a vibe from when he was really young. I'll tell well, you about that later. since he has known since he was eight, he wanted yeah. to kill his mom. Yeah. Like, he... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He'd always been a little bit off, and he didn't get along with anybody. Like, hardly ever. Uh, definitely not anybody in his family. His grandparents did take precautions, like locking their guns up, but they still gave him his twenty-two. Yeah, what's the point in locking exactly. yours up if you're going to give him his own? Um, his grandmother, Maud even car- carried a pistol on herself at times. So Maud was a badass. Yeah. All right. I mean. Get it, Maud. But obviously that wasn't enough. Yeah, she was too busy running her mouth. Yeah, just shame on me. Just, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> don't be a nagger. <laughs> I don't know what okay. to tell you. <laughs> so Kemper called the police and they came to the ranch to take him into custody He was waiting calmly, sitting on the front porch steps for them. They placed him with the California Youth Authority, and in an interview, the police later reported, he said that he shot his grandma just to see what it felt like. Like, he just wanted to know what it would feel like to kill her. I thought it was because he was pissed. I mean... A little bit of both? Well, okay. He had already developed the same amount of rage towards his grandmother that he had for his mother. Yeah. Yeah. So So he was kind of thinking about it anyway. Yeah, he had already been thinking about it. Yeah. So that comment would become the quote most often associated with him, used to show how cold-blooded he was at at such a young age. Yet another reading of it indicates that he was merely stating the end result of his frustration with the woman. I mean, either way. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) He explained that he killed his grandfather to spare him having to find his grandmother dead. Murdered by her grandson. Yeah, so he really didn't... I think he actually kind of liked his grandfather, but... Yeah. He was like, I don't... (laughs) In his own twisted way, he was trying to protect him. Yeah, well, he he thought that, you know, that he was sparing him from a heart attack. He was like, if my grandfather finds this, he's going to have a heart attack and die. So I might as well just just go ahead and kill him him and put him out of his misery. Yeah. Whatever. How sweet. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, it seemed incomprehensible to the California system that a child could do such a thing. He was sent for psychiatric testing and diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia. Duh. He was also found to have a near-genius IQ. It's been reported that um, it was anywhere between 135 and 145. They're always geniuses. Always. There's a reason for that, though. Like, when we say, oh, they're always in the military, or they always had 
um, a bad childhood or they always had a high IQ, there's a reason they say that. And it's because of him. He's late later on when he starts getting interviewed by the FBI and everything, they actually base their serial killer cases and, um, the characteristics, 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 like the way that they conduct interviews and stuff like that based off of him. So when we say, you know, all this is so typical, it's because of him. Yeah. I think that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, cause he liked to talk still a lot. He doesn't care. Anyway. So instead of staying at a facility operated by the youth authority, he ended up at the secure Atascadero state hospital for the criminally insane. And because he was so intelligent and astute, he was allowed access to some of the assessment devices, which is like assessment tests, questionnaires, even to administer them to other patients at this time. Which is insane. What? Let's let the crazy guy (laughs) administer tests to the other crazy people. Right. But I mean, whatever. While in the hospital, Kemper actually memorized the responses to 28 different assessment instruments. Of course he did. This is why you shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Providing himself with the proper tools to convince the doctors that who ever evaluated him um, that he would be safe to release upon his 21st birthday with his mother's help. Why? I don't know because she was such a bitch. Um, But he achieved this. He studied people and he figured out what they wanted to hear. He decided that he probably shouldn't tell them that his thoughts were actually confused with, uh, confused, consumed (laughs) with, maybe confused (laughs) with (laughs) fantasies of cannibalism, murder and mutilation. Oh my. Yeah. He, um, he learned a lot while he was there. He was mentored by all of the sexual predators up there and soon started listening to all of their stories with great intent. He started to pick their brain and ask them questions. Because in a place like that, they're going to tell all the details because they're they're kind of bragging and they're probably trying to one up each other. You know, it's a, yeah, it's a safe place to talk about it. And mm-hmm. I mean, you're obviously already insane. Yeah, it's not like it could get any worse. <laughs> you did something just as bad to get in here. Uh huh. So yeah, he started asking them questions, and this was basically his version of sex ed since he was never taught about any of that by his mom or dad. Nobody. That's great. Yeah, so this was his Let sex ed. Let the sexual predators teach you about sex ed. Yeah. So all he really knew was to rape. Yeah, violence. Mm-hmm. He took notes mentally and learned what not to do in the process. Honestly, that's pretty damn clever. Yeah. Nah. But I have a picture of the hospital. Okay. It's It's such a cozy looking place. I detect sarcasm. There is a lot of sarcasm in that. Okay. Um, But Atascadero State Hospital was the world's largest hospital for the criminally insane. All right. Look how big that sucker is. I like the picture with the deer in it. I know. Isn't that cute? I was like, (laughs) oh. It's a nice little nighttime picture. Look how tiny that room is. That, yeah, that's an example of the patient rooms. That potty is way too close to that bed. I mean, it's pretty much a jail cell. It's not sanitary. With a window. It's not sanitary. Oh, I'm pretty sure they had to clean it. I don't want my... I know, but I don't want my potty that close to my bed. I guess it can make it Would convenient. you rather not have a potty at all, though? 
I mean, think about it. I would like to have my own potty. Mm-hmm. Right by the bed? How convenient would that be at 3 o'clock in the morning when you have to wake up and tinkle and be like, oh, let me just slide off the bed? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't hate it. I'd rather it be slightly further away. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's by his feet. It's fine. <laughs> It's not like it's right by his head like Gong Dudes was. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Um, you know what I'm uh, talking about? German the, man. Yeah, the German guy. Hans, uh, <laughs> uh, what is his name? What is wrong with me? I don't know any of the people. They his head I know. for years. No, hang on. What is... Oh, we got it. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking because it's killing me. And his name's not fucking Hans. Why did Hans come No, out? that was a victim, I think. I think that was one of his victims. Fritz Harmon! Fritz! Yes, Fritz. Fritz. Oh, good old Fritz. Uh, there's his head right there. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad it got destroyed right. or lost. Was it lost or? Anyways, destroyed. Okay. There's one more picture of the mental institution, and that's uh, one of the main hallways. Mm-hmm. Nice, right? Like, there's the grill. It's so there's- airy. Hmm. It still looks like a prison to me. No, I was being a smart ass. That I know. is not airy. <laughs> not. It all of it looks like a prison. Like you can Google more images and it it does. It looks exactly like a prison. Well, it's supposed to be because they're they're criminals. That's true. I just I just kind of always pictured like instead of going to a prison, they send them to a mental institution and it would be a little bit more cozy. No, we don't want them to be cozy. They're killing people. That's where they send. But it's therapeutic. That, that's where they send the Ed Kempers of the world. There's no amount of therapy in the world that's going to help those people. They cry. Yes. And they will kill all the peoples. Yes. They need to be locked up. I think that's what makes <sighs> him so different is that he, like, he told people, he was like, I'm going to continue to kill. Lock me up. <laughs> You're going to have to contain me, guys. Take me in. So, the most comprehensive sources on Kemper's case came from people who wrote during the 1970s, immediately after his trial, including psychiatrist Donald Lund and authors Ward Damio and Margaret Cheney. Cheney? Cheney. Kemper also did an interview in 1978, which ended up on Court TV's Mugshots program. What? Yeah, I've never... I've never heard of this, but I think I'm going to have to Google... One you might be more familiar with and one of his more famous interviews was um, the ones that were done by former FBI profilers Robert R. Ressler and John Douglas, who interviewed him at length and discussed their encounters with him in their respective books. You may have heard of it. It's called Mind Hunter. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) It's on Netflix. (laughs) Go watch it. Go watch it. It can't. It has more than just Ed Kemper. I know. It's on my list. And it's all factual. I've heard so many good. It's not all factual. Well, the interviews that they do with the prisoners, though, they're they're real. Those are word for word. Yeah, they're all real people. So that part I'm 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 loving. Yeah, it's. I've heard a lot of good things about it. Yeah, it's really. I just. I'm not done with it yet. I'm on season two. There's only two seasons, so you're gonna have to wait. I don't. I mean, that was years ago. I don't. Oh, they may not be doing anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a couple years ago that they finished season two. So, but we had COVID. 
So you might have to Google it because, you know, some, <sighs> some stuff just took a break because of COVID. Please tell me that's coming back out because I really love that one. Okay. While self-report is generally suspect, what Kemper has to say about himself and his background is revealing. Accounts of him generally emphasize his huge size, six foot nine and nearly 300 pounds. If you want the boxing announcement, you can go back to the beginning of the, <laughs> of the episode. <laughs> but the manner in which he thinks and speaks is more interesting. Kemper's string of crimes was the third for San Jose, California since 1970. So it's instructive to look at the first two briefly to understand the level of fear that hovered over the area upon his arrest. Just after he came out of Atascadero, the town that would become his new home made national headlines. The beach town of Santa Cruz lies south of San Francisco on the Pacific coast. Surrounded by mountains, ocean, and towering redwood trees, it's a tourist mecca and an upscale place to own a, a home or rent an apartment. During the early 1970s, when the murders began, townspeople were already torn over the hippies moving in. Those damn hippies. Whatever. I love the hippies. Thanks in part to the University of California opening up a new campus there. Young people flooded in, and not all of them were what residents called desirable. Whatever. Damn hippies with their dirty hair and their smoking <laughs> their marijuanas. <laughs> the marijuana cigarettes. Heard about it's, them LSD tablets too. Oh my gosh. <gasps> They're all going to hell. They're all going to hell. In a hand basket. <laughs> Every single one of them. This country's going straight to hell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yup. <laughs> that just happened. <laughs> Thank you, barefoot wine. <laughs> I think we always seem to get a little bit sillier when we drink the barefoot. I'm not like seriously. I think you there's a trend. You may be onto something. I think so. <laughs> I, don't I had some of that mask stuck to my fingernail. <laughs> I'll give y'all a little insight to, um, after taking off the masks, <laughs> there's still little pieces everywhere. And I said, oh my God, there's some in my hair. That's what she said. <laughs> Which she promptly replied. <laughs> yes. I was taught well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's a little tidbit. I just thought that was funny. I had to throw that in there. That's how silly we get. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so the residents weren't desirable. Them goddamn hippies. At the time, Damio writes, 95% of murders that occurred in America were primarily situational. Inspired by intense domestic incidents or the result of some kind of altercation among friends. But the murders during the 1970s in Santa Cruz defied this pattern. And while one killer was quickly captured after his crime, for several months, no arrests were made or suspects identified for the other cases. By 1973, people were purchasing guns to protect themselves because clearly these offenders were boldly entering the homes of ordinary citizens. But I'm about to tell you who, who they talk about. Okay. Near the end of 1970, John Lindley Fraser murdered five people to stop what he viewed as the spread of progress that was ruining the natural environment. 
an extremist in the hippie lifestyle. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless was found sane and convicted. His trial became a circus in part because he wanted to appear to be pretending to be insane. So the jury would believe that he was malingering. Um, but there was also an air of suspicion against hippies because over the span of two nights during the previous year, Charles Manson may have heard of him <laughs> and his gang had massacred seven people down in Los Angeles. Like Manson, Frazier had invaded a home and brutally killed the occupants, occupants including two children, hmm. for some bizarre drug-inspired vision. Then in late, in late 1972 and early 73, across a terrifying period of four months, another series of murders occurred around Santa Cruz. Among the victims were four campers, a priest, a man digging in his garden, a young girl, and a mother and her two children. And a partridge in a pear tree. Yep. But out. The police finally stopped the killer. But out. This is such a serious spot, and I saw her. Couldn't help myself. But now, but now. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, the police finally stopped the killer, Herbert Mullen, twenty-five. May have heard of him as well. If not, we may do him later. Maybe, baby. although he had been institutionalized and evaluated as a danger to others he'd nevertheless become an outpatient which allowed him to roam freely why he stopped taking his antipsychotic medication and heard a voice that urged him to kill it was his mission mullen believed to save the people of california from a super earthquake that would send it into the ocean Yep. Okay. Thus, he decided that he had to sing the die song, which he believed would persuade 13 people to either kill themselves or allow themselves to become human sacrifices. The die song? The die song. I don't know. I, I have to know what the fucking I, die song is. I chose not to further look up anything because we we might decide to do him later. Like, I, okay. I don't know. So I left that out. Okay. Um. Using a knife, gun, or baseball bat to slay those he selected, he killed until police picked him up. Also diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, he was nevertheless considered legally sane and convicted on 10 counts of murder. Jesus, people. Calm down. (laughs) But even before that, in May 1972, female hitchhikers began to disappear. To subdue public panic, the authorities tried linking these disappearances to Mullen so they could assure the community that the stream of murders was at an end. But it soon turned out to be another person altogether. Someone who surprised them. (laughs) We had two of those in the little paragraph. Eventually, the Santa Cruz Sentinel, the local newspaper, would put together a magazine that reviewed important events in the area across the decades and featured these three killers. It felt like the actions of a world gone crazy, recalled reporter Tim Honig. The 1970s was an age of violence, and along with Frazier and Mullen, they would add Edmund Kemper, now a young man. Altogether, the three killed 28 people, not not nearly as much as Gacy, because Gacy, you know, did 33. He's an overachiever. He's, He's an overachiever. way overachiever. <laughs> 
um, and represented the three basic types of multiple murderers. Frazier killed his victims all at once, Mullen in a spree, and Kemper was a serial killer. Yeah. Kemper's crimes began before Mullen and stopped after him. What precipitated it, according to his account in several interviews, was his mother's constant taunting and humiliation. When released by the parole board from a Tuscadero in 1969, the psychiatrist had advised that Kemper not be returned to Clarnell, his mother, if y'all forgot who that was. Because bitches cray. Because bitches cray, and it would trigger more violence. But they didn't listen. No one was keeping watch. Having no means of support and no assistance from the youth authority, Kemper was paroled to his mother. And Ugh. according to the, to him, she took up berating him again. Of course. Having left her third husband, which Ed said she went through like a hot knife through butter. Wow. Actual quote. I like uh, it. Yeah. Uh, she had taken a job at the new university in Santa Cruz as an administrative assistant and moved into a du- duplex on Ord Drive in Aptos. Um, I don't, I don't know where that is. I've never heard of that. Me neither. Um, they had sounds lovely, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, it's California. It's the Los Angeles Santa Cruz area, so it's probably, probably gorgeous. Lovely. They had frequent arguments that the neighbors overheard. Whether or not Clarnell was a primary influence in his subsequent actions, there is no doubt that they had an unrelentingly toxic relationship. As part of his parole requirements, Kemper went to a community college, and he did well. He actually got straight A's. Um, When he was little, he was just an average student because he was bored. Mm -hmm. But he hoped he would actually get into the police academy one day. But he learned that he was too tall. I didn't know that was a thing. It's a thing. Um, you know, they have minimum requirements. Well, apparently they have maximum requirements as well. Okay. So he was too tall. See, I would think that would be an advantage for like. I would think so too. Crowd control. Well, maybe, <laughs> I mean, maybe now, but I mean, back then. He could see over the tops of people's heads. He could see events. the weather. Yes. He could <laughs> There's so much he could do. I bet he could change all the light bulbs at the police station. I mean, come on, guys. Just like on Elf, he could have his special talents at the police station. Right. Like Buddy the Elf had in Santa's workshop. I, we're geniuses. <laughs> we, we just solved it right there. That's all you need to do. Just, just give him a special task, okay? Yes. My God. Ugh. Whatever. So, yeah, when he learned that he was too tall, his consolation was to hang out in the jury room, a local bar where the police gathered, and he would listen to their stories. That sounds swell. Doesn't it, though? <laughs> I would hang out at the jury room. <laughs> Let's go. Tell me some stories. <laughs> they knew him as Big Ed and generally thought of him as a polite young man. His voice was soft, his manner polite, and his speech intelligent and articulate. He idolized John Wayne. And everyone knew it. Wow. Yeah. Actually, there's a funny little story about his first date. He didn't have a first date until he was 21. Okay. Okay. Well, because he was institutionalized. Right. So when he came out and he went on this date with this girl, he took her to a John Wayne movie because when he was 15, that's what was hip. Yeah. And um, took her to a John Wayne movie and then took her to Denny's. Wow. She peaced out. 
Uh, yeah, understandably so. <laughs> and it was actually a normal date. Like, he didn't try anything with her. It was a completely normal date. She was just like, um, okay. And he said she was gorgeous. She was an amazing young woman. But um, he was so like, amazing that he took her to fucking Denny's. Well, he thought that was she don't want no Grand Slam breakfast. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Take me to Denny's. I don't care. <laughs> they have some really good food. I guess that's where where I'm bougie. If it's a first date, I want to go like take me to a good place. I don't know. Yeah, like I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to eating pancakes, but like I want that's usually like maybe a fourth date. I want like some first watch pumpkin pancakes. If you're gonna take me to eat pancakes, okay. So as long as it's bougie, it's okay. Yeah, it's got to be fancy. Okay. I want fancy pancakes. Okay. Okay. I guess first watch it in fancy, but it's better than Denny's. It's, it's fancier than Denny's. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone off the rails a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, he was a little out of touch. He he didn't know I want some the, the hot new spots to go. Shrimp and grits. That's what he should have done. Oh, my gosh. Just, shrimp just do grits. shrimp and grits. That's, oh. Ed, I could have helped you. Man. Want some sherman grits? Okay. Anywho, <laughs> anywho, um, he even re- referred to himself as a dork. He was like, I-, "I can't falter for it. I was a dork." Yeah. Little did they know that they would eventually be telling one of their most bizarre tales about him talking about the cops. Mm. Hmm. Mm. He got several different jobs and finally ended up with the California Highway Department. When he had saved enough money to move out of his mother's home, he went to North Alameda North San- near San Francisco and shared an apartment with a friend. Don't know who that friend was. I'm That's sure I could find it. But he had friends? I already have so much information. I was like, it's fine. The friend's not really significant. So here it is. Um, but he often had no money and sometimes ended up back with Clarnell. He purchased a motorcycle. But got into two separate accidents, one of which paid out in a settlement that gave him $15,000. He's too big to be on a motorcycle anyhow. I don't know. I mean, he probably looked like... <laughs> dude. <laughs> dude. Little... Shriner. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was, I was going to try not to say Shriner, but I mean, it looks like one of the little clown bikes. <laughs> Shriner. Know? Yeah. So, with this, he bought a yellow Ford Galaxy. Nice. So we're going to have a couple of car photos. I know. I'm going to have to look up a yellow Ford Galaxy for yeah. 1973 or two. This is two. 72. Yeah. Yeah. So he began to cruise the area. Did he go cruising as well? He did. <laughs> he noticed young females out hitchhiking. The popular mode of travel for college students in those days along the West Coast. And when he looked them over, as he described in later interviews, he thought about things that he could do to them. Of course he did. Listen to this. Quietly, he prepared his car for what he had in mind, placing plastic bags, knives, a blanket, and handcuffs that he had acquired into the trunk. He made himself a murder kit! (laughs) Yeah, he did. (laughs) Maybe this is where Dexter got the idea from. (laughs) Probably. Um, Now all he had to do was wait for an opportunity. For a period of time, he picked up girls and let them go 
just as trial runs, experiments, if you will. Mm -hmm. By his estimation, he picked up around 150 hitchhikers, any of whom might have been chosen for his plan. Can you imagine? Finding like, out later like finding that this out, dude gave holy you a ride. crap, that's who I hitchhiked with? Mm-hmm. You almost got dead. Yep. Finally, he felt the urgent inner drive of what he called his little zapples, and he acted. <laughs> little zapples. <laughs> I almost spit wine. Are you okay over there? I had just taken a huge drink, and you're like, little zapples. <laughs> The fuck? <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I've interrupted or swallowed twice. I want to roll. Yep. You're fucking it up. Mm, that's my plan. <laughs> so, yeah, he called him his little zapples. On May 7th, 1972, as people were still troubled by the conclusion of the Fraser trial, less than six months before, Marianne Peche... And Anita Lucessa hitchhiked from Fresno State College to meet friends at Stanford University. Damio, Newton, and Fraser laid out the events chronologically. When the girls failed to arrive at their destination, their families contacted the police. But runaways were, like, really frequent during those days, and the girls had left behind no clues um, where they had gone, so there was little that the authorities could do. Yeah. Whatever. Then on August 15th, the remains of a female head were recovered from an area in the mountains and identified as that of Pache. Pat, Pat, yeah. Pache. Nailed it. Yep. No other remains were found, but it was assumed that both girls had been met with foul play and were dead. On September 14th, dance student Aiko Koo disappeared while hitching from Berkeley. On October 13th, Mullen's series of murders began to catch people's attention. But then, early in 1973, 18-year-old Cindy Shaw disappeared while traveling to class at Cabrillo Community College. She was hitchhiking. <laughs> she was hitchhiking <laughs> and had stopped off at a friend's house. Someone saw her get a ride, and then she was just gone. Less than two days later, dismembered arms and legs were found on a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Oh, no, no, no. Then an upper torso washed ashore, which was identified via lung x-rays as shawls. Eventually, a lower torso came in. A surfer also found her left hand, which offered fingerprints, but her head and right hand remained missing. Stop it. The papers began talking about the chopper and the butcher. Then on January 25th, two local families were shot to death in their homes. The Santa Cruz area was in a panic, and soon four young men who were camping were all shot close range in the head. Two more girls out hitchhiking disappeared on February 25th, Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. There were no leads whatsoever in their disappearances. Then on February 13th, a witness called the police after another shooting of a man in his garden. In short order, they arrested Herbert Mullen. Um, he was tied to most of the shootings, but not the murders of Cindy Shaw or Marianne Peche, um, or the disappearance of the other hitchhikers. Kidnapping and dismemberment were not part of his MO, yet Damio indicates that upon Mullen's arrest, I almost said release, arrest, <laughs> 
The media coverage of the local violence inspired an atmosphere of terror. (laughs) One reporter, uh, Marilyn Baker, consistently exaggerated rumors and offered uncorroborated information as fact, angering the police and alarming the citizens. She gave daily reports of satanic rituals. Remember the satanic Satanic panic? panic. Mm -hmm. And linked together a number of murders over the course of a year. The butcher murders are unique, Damio quotes as her saying. Um, the decapitation and dismemberment is done with the skill of what police say borders on perhaps professional knowledge. The bodies were placed in a slant position, the heads lower than the feet, so the blood would drain out, making such dismemberment easier. I was trying to do a newscaster voice. I don't, well, ha- right. I don't have one, but I tried. <laughs> Baker also mentioned that one or more of the victims appeared to have been held captive for a period of time prior to be- being killed. And noted that the Achilles tendon was sliced nope, on nope, Cynthia nope. Shaw. Nope, 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 nope. I know, nope. I know. <laughs> that, that hurts. It hurts. It hurts my feet. It hurts my teeth. I know that sounds weird. No, but it, it's not. It, it makes my whole body clench. Mm-hmm. It hurts my teeth. Mm. Um, yeah. She suggested that the killer was a lesbian or a transvestite and scolded the police for their mistakes during oh, the investigation. My Shut gosh. the fuck up, you bitch. She warned that the butcher murders occurred on Mondays after dark during the full moon, (laughs) which was blatantly untrue. (laughs) Yet for her, it seemed like evidence of cult activity. Calm down, lady. Go away. The authorities were stumped. The area had become a hotbed of murder and missing persons, mostly young women. They had few leads and no methods for ending the killing. The university experienced a sudden drop in re- enrollment. Of course. Because yeah. he wants to go to the murder school. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks. I'll stay at home. Mm-hmm. But then the unexpected occurred. The police heard from the last of the killers, the one who was killing the co-eds. He had stopped the spree himself. Mm-hmm. Hmm. On April 23rd, 1973, the Santa Cruz police received a call that they could not quite believe. It was from a phone booth in Pueblo, Colorado, from a 24-year-old man who had eaten with them, drank with them, and talked with them for hours. Big Ed. I didn't realize he was only 24. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. I learned something. I thought he was older than that. Yeah, he was a baby. Wow. Yep. Oh, Ed. I know. And now he was telling them that he had committed a murder. In fact, a double homicide four days earlier. And then some. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. He had killed his mother, Clarnell, on Good Friday. And then he'd gone drinking with his two cop buddies. <laughs> <laughs> he okay. returned and invited his mother's friend, Sarah or Sally Hallett over for dinner and a movie. She was delighted. When she arrived, he killed her too and removed her head. Both bodies were stuffed in the closets in his mother's duplex on Ord Drive. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to go more in detail in a little bit. Okay. You're, you're welcome. Okay. Kimber explained that after leaving the house, he had driven for several days, had dropped off one car and rented a green Chevy Impala. I guess I'll throw that in the car picks too. Moving on up. 
He had finally decided to turn himself in. He'd been taking no dose for three days and felt half crazy. That that's had, what made him feel crazy. They had no dose back then. Yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That bottle's gone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh yeah. So he felt half crazy. Just half though. <laughs> Only halfway. Only halfway. So he didn't take enough no dose. No. <laughs> <laughs> he listed a half dozen other murders that they had yet to solve referring over and over to the co-eds he wanted someone to come and pick him up he had 200 rounds of ammo and three guns in the car that scared him and he was turning himself in but the officer who first took the call believed that it was a prank he suggested the young man call again later so kipper did but once again, he had a difficult time convincing the person at the other end what of What in the so actual fuck is like, happening? I'm laughing because of the way you're looking at me. It's, it's I can't. End. I can't. She's like, what the? F- <laughs> what the actual? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Call again later. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 <laughs> Those who knew him believed it was all some practical joke. He continued to place calls until he was able to persuade an officer to go check out his mother's house. He said that an officer, Sergeant Alifa, was there uh, not too long ago to confiscate the forty-four caliber caliber revolver that he had purchased. And that that officer would know where to go. And Sergeant Alifi did indeed know where to go. So he went to the home himself. As he entered, he smelled the putrid odor of decomposition. Dead bodies everywhere. Yeah. When he opened a closet and saw blood and hair, he secured the scene and called the coroner and detectives. Holy shit. He was right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Now someone go pick him the fuck up. (laughs) He wasn't fucking playing, guys. (laughs) Go get him. Yeah. To their amazement, they found the two bodies, just as Kemper had described. Both had been decapitated, and Clarnell had been battered and apparently used for dart practice. Of course. Yeah, after he cut off her head and did something else, he used her for dart practice. I mean, if I had a head laying around, I, I might use it for dart practice. I, I mean, if you really intensely hated them like he did, you might. I mean, that's kind of the equivalent of hanging a picture on the wall and throwing darts at it, right? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you just have these heads laying around, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Why not? (laughs) Her tongue and larynx, Kemper had said, were chopped up. Having been placed in the garbage disposal, but it spit them back out. Uh, That like made me, that gave me a shiver. It was like, (laughs) ugh. Gross. Yeah, but it spit them back out. He just wanted to shut her up once and for all, is what he said. You did it, boo. You did it. Yeah, he did. Mission accomplished. Nailed it. Investigators now realize why the co-ed butcher had eluded them for so long. Light bulb. Because he was having beers with him at the bar. Uh-huh. Back to you, Tom. 
That was my reporter voice. <laughs> As John Douglas put it upon hearing now, Kemper <laughs> had the privy to the jury room and the investigation details. He was analyzing what he was doing and learning to perfect his technique. <laughs> <laughs> he had discovered their strategies and plans for trapping him. Like... They would sit there and talk about the co-ed killers, so he knew exactly where they were at on the case. Yep. It's so fucked up. He's like, oh, they're going to try to do this, dumbasses. <laughs> yeah. So he, so he discovered there's strategies and plans for trapping him. So now they know why he was so elusive. Yeah. And he was able to outthink and elude them. But he also had not come across as a killer. I mean, they thought he was just this big, sweet teddy bear. Sweet big Ed. (laughs) He learned how to make people feel safe around him. And that was probably how he had found ways to get girls into his cars, despite warnings issued to students throughout the area. Jesus Christ, people. Uh DA, Peter Chang, and a party of detectives traveled across three three states. Thresh range. Shut up. To pick up Kemper from detention where local police had placed him and they found him waiting calmly for them just as he had done before when he was sitting on the front porch steps. He seemed to know that he was dangerous and unable to control himself and understood that he needed to be locked up. He was willing to talk and twice waived his right to an attorney, though he would later say that he did ask for a lawyer. Hmm. Always ask for a lawyer. I don't care what it is. Always. Even if you're totally innocent shut the fuck up ask for a lawyer um i have his mug shot when he was arrested okay the one that you've been staring at i think it was staring at me and it was freaking me out okay that makes more sense yep i can't like it and i just zoomed in on it and i can't like it more that mustache is unsettling (laughs) he keeps it he still has it actually oh my gosh (laughs) Dude, let it go. Let it go. You're talking to the guy who still thought John Wayne and Denny's was cool. You're right. Yeah. He's a little out of touch. Uh, The story that unfolded was as bizarre as any they had yet heard. He went on for hours confessing everything that he had done to the six co-eds, his mother and her friend, adding these to the murders of his grandparents years earlier. He had committed 10 murders in all. To prove his tale, he took detectives to areas where he had buried or tossed parts of his victims that had not yet been found. He described having sex with the heads of his victims. Mm-hmm. What? How did you put it? He made love to the neck hole? Yeah. Yep. He made love to the neck hole. Sweet, sweet love. And said that he'd <laughs> loved the feeling of totally possessing them and their property. Ah, <laughs> gross. Um, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and throw this picture in there because it seems to fit pretty well. Okay. He collected souvenirs from all of his victims. Okay. There's a picture called Souvenirs. What do we have here? Some clothes, some driver's licenses, photos, a hairbrush. Yeah. Okay. He had quite the collection. Yes, he did. So the stories would grow worse during the trial, thanks to (laughs) psychiatric probing. 
<laughs> probing. <laughs> and both sides set about finding out what they could do about this disturbing young man. So all of this is really freaking crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And I bet you're asking why. Shit's crazy. Like, how in the world could he have done all this, right? Yeah. Background time. Woohoo! Born in beautiful downtown Burbank, California. It sounded like a game show host. It, it is, but I can't remember. I don't remember what it was. Is it The Price is Right? Is it? It might be. I think it's The Price is Right. But I was like, oh, oh. Say it in your best Bob Barker voice, and then I'll tell you. But it wasn't Bob Barker that said it. I was just being a smart <laughs> Okay. So, in Burbank, California, uh, born on December 18th, 1948, Edmund E. Kemper III came into the world at a whopping 13 pounds. Mother frock. That's like both of my kids' weight added up together. That's not okay. Oh, my God. Her vagina was never the same. It was never the same. Maybe that's why she was so bitchy. He ruined her vagina, and that's why she hated him. Yeah. Um, He was the second child for uh, Edmund Jr., and Clarnell Kemper. He had a sister six years older and a sister two and a half years younger. So he was the middle child. Mm-hmm. Ed was close to his father, but E.E. Uh, e. divorced Clarnell in 1957 when Edmund was nine. And she moved with the children to Montana. His father said, <laughs> okay, his father served in World War II. And he said that completing a suicide mission would be better than being married to that woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. That gives us a little Clarnell insight there. <laughs> all right. I have a picture of dear old mom and dad. Okay. Okay. He looks spiffy in his uniform. He's got a horrendous mustache as well. Yep. Her glasses are fabulous, but you can tell by the look on her face that she's a bitch. Yes. Yeah. But Through glasses are adorbs. Yeah. Uh, it was a difficult separation for Edmund. His nickname was Guy. Guy? Yeah. All right. Uh, hey there, Guy. I know. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> she never loved on him, even as an infant. She said it would turn him gay. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, congrats, bitch. Now he's a serial killer yeah. instead. Good job. Good for you. Mom. Slow clap for Clarnell. Yeah. He believed that he must have been a constant prickly reminder to his mother. He hated her, but often spoke as if he understood her motives and behavior. She was a severe alcoholic. In many different interviews, he described his fear and anger growing up along with the things he envisioned doing. I have a little clip of one of his interviews where he's talking about his mom. Okay. And uh, I'm going to play it. Okay. I'm so excited. Are you ready? Yeah. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. And I watched the alcohol increase. I watched her social life drop off. I watched her get bizarre. She had terrible pain from her life, earlier life, her upbringing, uh, a failed marriage with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. I hate to distill it down into such... Uh, into one word realities like that there's a lot that leads into that happening but that is what happened 
They represented not what my mother was, but what she liked, what she coveted, what was important to her, and I was destroying it. Why did you actually kill the girls? My frustration, my inability to communicate socially, sexually. I wasn't impotent, but emotionally I was impotent. I was scared to death of failing in male-female relationships. I knew absolutely nothing about that whole area. Even if just sitting down and talking with the young lady. I need to be able to really communicate. And ironically enough, that's why I began picking people up. Y'all. Well, all right. Yeah. So he ruined mommy's life. And that's why he <laughs> killed the co-eds on the college campuses. Because that was what she represented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. A little, a little PSA for the mommies and daddies. Be nice to your babies. Yes. Nurture. Don't don't put them down. Mm-mm. Even if they're the ugliest kid in the world, you tell them <laughs> that they are fucking beautiful, okay? <laughs> Positive affirmation. Find, find the positives in whatever they do. Yes. It's very, very crucial to their development. Do it okay? to the point where when someone says, you're so handsome, they say, I know, my mommy tells me. <laughs> Ashton. <laughs> Asher does it too. <laughs> like she's getting to the age now where she says, I know, oh wait, thank you, I'm sorry. <laughs> she's starting to become aware. <laughs> Ashton told this cashier one time, she's like, oh, you're so handsome. I know, my mommy told me. <laughs> and he was like, buddy, you just say thank you. You just say thank you. He'll get it. <laughs> it's like a Monica moment. I know. I know. <laughs> and he'll tell me, I'm I'm so smart. You say it, I'm so smart. Yep, I said you're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> I love his little pronunciations of stuff. <laughs> he speaks so well for a three-year-old that sometimes you forget you're talking to a three-year-old until he says something like that. Vacation. Yeah. <laughs> It looks like vacation outside, Mom. Yeah, because it was frosty everywhere this morning. It was frosty this morning. And this time last year, we were on like a ski vacation. Yeah. And so he related that to snow. And he was like, it looks like vacation. Like, it's not <laughs> that's not I'm vacation, not going to school. <laughs> yeah, and he was trying to get out and going to school. And then somebody was burning leaves. And so he like sniffed. And there was a lot of like, you know, fi- wood burning fireplaces and stuff when we were on vacation. And uh, he said... <laughs> Smells like vacation too. Hint, hint, mom. Like, dude, we're going to school today. <laughs> you need to calm down. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay. He said that when he killed the family cat, placing its head on the altar, he had felt empowered after persuasively lying about it. Oh my gosh. Like he, he loved that they didn't know the truth. He had, he held something over their heads. Like, I know you don't. Ha ha ha. Yeah. He honed in on this ability to present a public facade that people trusted while his private world contained much darker ideas. By the time he was 10, he was already thinking about females in sexual terms, which I mean, what 10 year old doesn't normal, I think. Yeah. I don't think that's really that abnormal. He was also developing a violent inner world. 
When I was in school, Kemper said in a taped interview, I was called a chronic daydreamer and I saw a counselor twice during junior high and high school and that was the routine. They didn't ask me a lot of questions about myself and that was probably the most violent fantasy time that I was into. He was deathly afraid of the other kids, believe it or not. He thought they were going to hurt him. Aww. Yeah. Like, dude, who would mess with you? He's like a gentle giant. (laughs) Yeah. Stories from his sisters involved disconcerting memories. One teased him to kiss a teacher, but uh, he apparently said that if he did, he'd have to kill her first. Oh, First, first, not afterwards, first. Yeah, caught that. Mm -hmm. Nope. His younger sister recalled that he often cut off the heads of her dolls. He loved the little, like, pop sound that it made. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He claimed that to toughen him up at the age of 10, his mother started locking him in the basement at night. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. That was after they moved to Montana. She was worried that he might try and rape his sisters. Her instincts were apparently right. Uh, Kemper has said no he never touched his sisters yeah but but yeah Kemper has said that I lived as an ordinary person most of my life even though I was living a parallel and increasingly violent other life I have a picture of Ed with his sisters okay one of them is Ed and Alan his youngest sister I love the way they spell her name though A-L-L-Y-N Alan That's so cute. It's different. Yeah. See how big he is, though? Like, awkward? He's only... She's only three years younger than him. Yeah. What? Yeah. He's ginormous. Yep. And then there's a picture of his two sisters. She Uh, crazy tall, too. I know. She is kind of tall. But, I mean, she was was older than him, though. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, Susan is the tall one, and Alan is the little bitty one. So there you go. All right. There's sissies. They shouldn't have cut Alan's hair like that. Nope. But it was was the 70s. (laughs) When he was 13, Kemper slaughtered his own pet cat with a machete and stuffed the remains in his closet, which his mother found. Okay, if you find that shit, say something. Yeah. Say something. Get him some help. Well, no, because then people would know. Uh, yeah, true. Because if he was thirteen, that that was the <laughs> late that was the late sixties. True. Yeah. Yeah. It was. So it that would be shameful. I mean, that's stupid. But well, they they weren't really in tune with medical treatments for you know mental disorders and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. I don't know. Kind of catch 22. Kemper also ran away from his home that year to go live with his father. He was certain that it would be a better life for him. But after he arrived, he eventually learned that his father, who had remarried and had a stepson, was not quite happy to see him as he'd hoped. Um, His dad welcomed him for a while, but then was like, look, (laughs) you got to go. So, he sent him to his parents' ranch in Cali. He finished out the school year with them and went back to Montana to live with his mom. But Clarnell, too, was unwilling to have him. 
because she was planning on marrying her third husband at the time. And his overgrown adolescent uh, was a handful. This overgrown, sorry, adolescent was a handful. Her solution was to pack Ed up and send him to his father's parents' ranch in California. Hmm. (laughs) I went to live with dad, he said, and he sends me up to grandma. But now she's going to undo all the terrible things that my mother did to me. I'm going to be a showpiece. She's going to show the world that my mother was a lousy parent. I'm going to be a pawn in this little game. But now you know how that actually turned out. Yeah. And, you know, your mom was a lousy parent, so there's Yeah, that. she was. There's that. Yeah. There, yeah. Garbage. Hmm. As Clarnell had done with her three ex-husbands, she attacked Edmund on many occasions, aiming at his manhood and sense of worth. Although he wanted to socialize, she refused to introduce him to women on campus. Um, she's holding these girls... She's holding up these girls who said they were too good for me to get to know, he recalled. She would say, you're just like your father. You don't deserve to get to know them. This kind of talk infuriated him, and he went out to cruise for the girls that he couldn't have. Mm-hmm. He knew a way to get them on his terms. Okay, so that's the why. Let's get to the uh, the how. Okay. Kemper had packed, had picked up many hitchhikers. I'm picking up young women, and I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of thing. First, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching where I could just act out. But I say, no, I can't. And then the gun is in the car, hidden. And this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside, this fantastic passion, it was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. Mm -mm -mm. Fantastic passion. That's like one of my favorite quotes by him. I I don't know why. I'm just, I like the way he put it. Yeah. Because to him it was. The experience changed him on May 7th, 1972. Even before Mullen began his reign of terror in the area, Kemper decided to make his move. It was stupid for anyone to hitchhike, he said. But to these people who thought it was fun and exciting and maybe even a little bit daring, it is, if they're dead. Oh, my. (laughs) He got insights and tidbits from reading police novels. For example, he learned how to keep the car door locked once the girls were inside. It's a nifty little trick, actually. Uh, Like, he would reach over Mm -hmm. and have a tube of chapstick in his hand, and he would hide it behind the door handle. And he would say that his door is, like, messed up. That's why he would have to open it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when they would go to try to open it, they couldn't see the chapstick somehow, and it wouldn't open. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He also knew how to give them the impression that they were safe with him. Clarnell had acquired a university sticker for Kemper's Ford, which made it easy to him to go in and out of the campus without raising suspicion. Um, it should be noted that coworkers at the university found Clarnell charming and easy to get along with. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> I mean, she did give him assistance and allowed him to live with her. What the fuck ever. On this day, Kemper 
Kemper picked up two 18-year-old college students out hitchhiking. That was Marianne Pesce and Anita Lucessa. He wanted to rape them, but decided on murder to leave no witnesses. Okay. Uh-huh. It was the very first time I went looking for someone to kill. And it's two people, not one. And they're dead. Very naive, too. Painfully naive that they thought that they were streetwise. In fact, they were quite grateful for the rod. And they were even there, sitting there talking about the serial killer that was on the loose. Shut up. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Yeah. And you just got in this dude's car. Uh-huh. Yeah, and no idea. It wasn't far to Stanford, perhaps an hour. So Kemper said he was willing to take them all the way. And they couldn't believe their luck. But their glee soon turned into terror. Kemper drove off the highway and came to a rest on a dark road. The girl sensed that something was sus. As if to intensify his own game, he had told them that he intended to rape them and that he was going to take them to his apartment. Although he had learned from listening to the stories of rapists at uh, Atascadero that it was better to leave no witnesses. Handcuffing Pesce to the back of the seat, he forced Lucessa into the trunk of the car. He then tried unsuccessfully to smother Pesce, and he said it takes way longer than you would think. Oh, gosh. Way more energy. It's way more of a struggle. So he gave up, and he stabbed her. The knife blade hit her backbone. It would not enter, but she felt the pain and put up a tremendous struggle. She also bit through the bag that he had placed over her head. Finally, he slit her throat and killed her. He then turned his attention to Lachessa and killed her as well, though it was an ordeal he hadn't expected. And now he had two corpses all to himself. Nice. Mm-hmm. And he was nearly caught, as the police learned during his confession. As he drove toward Almeida, he was stopped for a broken taillight. He- it's always the taillight. <laughs> Dude, y'all, check your taillights if you don't want to get caught. Commit one crime at a time. Yeah. Take care of your shit. He maintained a calm, polite attitude and got off with a mere warning. During the entire encounter, Kemper later said that he was excited. Had the officer decided to do a routine check and look into the trunk, Kemper would have killed him on the spot. In Almeida, his roommate was out, so he knew he could work on the bodies there without being disturbed. Wrapping them in blankets, he placed them in the trunk of his car and drove to his apartment. There, he brought the bodies inside and laid them on the floor. His own confessions provide the details. He took them into his own bedroom, where he photographed them. As he removed parts from them, he took more photographs and paused from time to time to savor the erotic moments of possessing them so completely. No, thank you. He said that he also engaged in sexual acts with the severed parts. Okay. That, uh, yeah. That's not okay. Placing Peche's parts in a bag, he left them in a shallow grave in the mountains, making sure to remember the place for later visits. Of course, yes. There it is. He used her head for sex before tossing it into a ravine, along with Lucessa's head. Mm-mm-mm. He then fell back into his habit of picking up girls and taking them safely to their destinations. Oh, my God. Sa- safely. Mm-hmm. He would even talk to his writers about the man who was killing female hitchhikers, all the while evaluating each as a potential victim. When someone put their hand on my car door handle, 
they were giving me their life. Not intentionally, brah. <laughs> <laughs> he continued with this activity until September 14th, 1972. That's the day he picked up Aiko, Aiko Ku, who had given up waiting for her bus and hitched a ride. He'd been feeling the energy that inspired his fantasies of murder. The girl seemed perfect for his next grim venture. He was surprised that she was only 15, Mm -mm. but determined to carry out his plan. About that encounter, Kemper said, I pulled the gun out to show it to her and show her that I had it. She was freaking out. Then I put the gun away, and that had more effect on her than pulling it out. That's what he said. (laughs) (laughs) He got out of the car, locking himself out, dumbass, which gave her an advantage, but... She was too scared to pick up his gun. She could have reached over and grabbed the gun, he said later, but I think she never gave it a thought. Instead, she unlocked the door and let him back she in. She was in shock. I know. Poor baby. He pinched her nostrils to force her to black out and then raped her. Then he strangled her until he was sure that she was dead and rode around with her body in the trunk of his car. As one does. He had a few drinks, probably at the jury room, before taking her home to dismember and dissect her in the same manner he had done with his first two victims. Once he had tasted this power over women, he knew it was only a matter of time before he wanted to do it again. But first, he had to prepare to convince the psychiatrists who were monitoring his case Mm. that he was cured. Okay, so at the same time that he was doing these killings... He was trying to have his juvenile record of when he killed his grandparents sealed. Right. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the day after he killed Aikoku, Kemper went before a panel of psychiatrists as a follow-up requirement for parole. He'd done well in school. He tried finding a job. And as far as anyone knew, he had stayed out of trouble. He knew what they wanted to hear. And he put on his best act. The first doctor talked with him for a while and indicated that he saw no reason to consider danger a uh, Kemper a danger to anyone. <coughs> okay. <laughs> the second one actually used the words normal and safe, according to Cheney. Both recommended the sealing of his juvenile records as a way to help him become a better citizen. Yet, even as the two psychiatrists congratulated themselves on being part of a system that had rehabilitated uh, a child killer. Sure you did, buddy. (laughs) Kemper delighted in his secret. Mm -hmm. Damia writes that not only had he killed a girl the day before the analysis, but he had her head in the trunk of his car outside. That's great. (laughs) Once again... He was in the game. He had succeeded at convincing the learned professionals that he was something other than what he really was, and they had wrongly inferred that he was no longer a danger. The judge did not agree, however, but had no grounds to deny the request to seal the records. So, thus, eight years after he killed his grandparents, Kemper gained his freedom. Mm-mm-mm. As he drove away with a clean bill of mental health, he felt pleased. Now he was free to continue with his experiments. Goody. Mm-hmm. He found a place to bury Koo's body and hands above Boulder Creek, and they remained undiscovered until the following May. But he was not finished. 
While he laid low for a while, he kept fantasizing about taking the lives of those young women. Women. He kept trophies and photographs and uh, of his grisly work to help renew the experiment. And as he clashed with his mother time and time again, the urge to kill built up within him. Later, Kemper tried to explain his motive for these crimes, my frustration, my inability to communicate socially, sexually. I mean, you heard that on the clip. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't impotent. I was scared to death of falling in male-female relationships. So, he purchased a twenty-two caliber pistol and then looked for a pretty hitchhiker. Okay. The one he found was named Cindy Shaw, who accepted a ride with him on January 7th, 1973. Again, he drove to a secluded area and shot her quickly. He wasn't interested in torture. He just wanted a body to handle. That's nice. Mm-hmm. He was now living with his mother again, and he took the corpse home to dismember her in the bathtub. Okay. He kept her overnight in his room and then beheaded her, burying the head in the backyard. Yep. He actually buried it under his mother's window and would face in the... He, this isn't the only one he did it with. <laughs> like, he would have the heads, like, pointing up towards her window like they were all looking at her. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing I approve of. I know, right? <laughs> like, that's some petty shit right there. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm here for it. Petty bitty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um he threw the body parts over a cliff but they quickly washed up onto the beach the surfer uh still he knew that he could not tie that to him he removed the bullet from the head smart yep and he was right no one suspected him because he was hanging with the police mm-hmm. he knew what to do mm-hmm. on february 5th after a horrendous argument with his mother Kemper went out cruising again. That's when Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Liu disappeared from campus. He picked up Rosalind first, and her presence in the car apparently reassured Allison, who willingly got in. Okay. It's kind of like with Colleen Stan, like there's a woman and a baby in the car. Sure, I'll get in. No danger right there, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh-huh. No. <laughs> uh, Miss Liu was sitting in back right behind Miss Thorpe, Kemper recalled. I went on down a ways and slowed down. I remarked on the beautiful view. I hesitated for several seconds. I had been moving my pistol from down below my leg in my lap. I picked it up and pulled the trigger. As I fired, she fell against the window. Miss Lou panicked. I had to fire through her hands because she was moving around and I missed twice. Wow. He hit her in the temple and he aimed again and fired. But she was still alive as he approached the university gate. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. One account indicates that she was already dead, but another describes her breathing loudly and moaning. Two young men were at the security gate, but when they saw Kemper's university sticker, they waved him through. Of course. The two women were wrapped in blankets. One of them was in the front passenger seat. He told some interviewers later that he explained to the guards that these girls were drunk and he was trying to get them back to their dorms. The guard apparently accepted the story, and Kimber decided that he was good, as good as invisible. Yeah. It was getting easier to do. I was getting better at it. 
He took the girls' bodies to his mother's home and dismembered and beheaded them with his mother nearby and neighbors around. Uh, he said, like, if you had actually looked outside, you could have seen what I was doing. Like, he didn't, he didn't hide it. Wow. Yeah. Another account says that he beheaded them outside in the car. Then he took one headless corpse inside to have sex. Ew. He was aware that a neighbor only had to walk by and look in the window and see what he was doing in order to catch him. Like I just said, but whatever. But no one did. The next morning, he deposited the limbs in the ocean and around the hills, tossing the heads away separately. His fourth episode of killing had been successfully completed. It would not be long before he vented his rage closer to home. Let's go ahead and look at the victims. Okay. There's a lot. Um, but you can see Marianne and Anita and Iko and Cindy and Rosalind and Alice. Look at the cheekbones on Alice. I know. Damn. Wow. Lucky. Right? Lovely ladies. That's so sad. I know. Uh, his mom and grandparents are on there and so is Sally. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, there's all of them. Ugh. Aren't they precious, though? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they're just sweet college girls. I know. So, after killing six young women, the six-foot-nine giant turned his anger against his ultimate target, his mother. While most experts later claim that his killing was really about symbolic rehearsal for killing his mother, and once he dispatched her, he no longer needed to kill Kemper's explanation is quite different. He indicated in an interview that he had sensed the cops closing in after Sergeant Alifi had paid him a call about his gun and wanted to spare his mother the embarrassment of learning that he was the co-ed butcher. However, his treatment of her corpse tells another story. Kemper also said that he feared that his mother had found the items he had taken from the women he killed. He wondered... If he should flee or kill her. I can't get away from her. She knows all my buttons and I dance like a puppet. He knew that he would now have to kill her, but he waited for the opportune moment. She went out with friends one evening evening, and came home tipsy from alcohol. Of course. I mean, what else would you come home <laughs> tipsy from? <laughs> um, Kemper went into her room and according to him, she said, I suppose you want to talk now. He told her no, but in his 1978 interview, he said that he then started to cry and put his hands to his mouth. It was the first time he had broken his composure. He'd spoken about the other murders with no show of guilt, compassion, or remorse, but his mother's death was another matter. He waited for her to go to bed and then went into her room with a claw hammer. It was so hard, he admitted, to remember when it hurt him. I cut off her head, and I hum- humiliated her, of course. She was dead because of the way she raised her son. Wow. But later, he said that he'd wish that he'd stayed up and, and talked to her. He put her head on the mantle and said he wanted to throw darts at her. So he did. And for the first time, she didn't argue with him. That felt satisfying, but he also knew... It was over for him. He would undoubtedly be linked to this crime. He penned a brief note quoting in Cheney's book, approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. 
No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick sleep in the way I wanted it. Some, yeah, some sources indicate that Kemper believed having two victims would deflect attention from him. So that's when he invited her best friend, Sally, over. And he punched her and strangled her, then laid her naked on his bed. He spent the night with the two corpses in his house with blood everywhere. And one account indicates that he tried to have sex with Hallett's corpse. He also beheaded her. On Easter morning, he fled in Sally's car. As he drove, he turned on the radio, hoping to hear on the news that someone had discovered the bodies. Yet, there were no news flashes. (laughs) That disappointed him. By the time he he reached Pueblo, after driving some 1,500 miles, he decided to instigate this, this, the discovery himself. Stopping at a phone booth, he called the police. Kemper made it easy for the cops. He showed them where he had buried the head of Cynthia Shaw in his mother's backyard, saying he had placed it there so he could take satisfaction in knowing, according to one detective, that she, she was on his property looking toward the sky. As they drove, he described each murder in minute minute detail and showed them where he had deposited each victim's remains. You want to look at some crime scenes? Sure. They're not as gory as my other ones. There's no body parts. But, um. Okay. I know. But, uh, if you look and see, they're digging up parts in the garden. That's at his house. Okay. That's where, um, like, heads and stuff were. Nice. Mm-hmm. And digging up parts in the woods. You can see how freaking tall he is. Yeah, he is. <laughs> like, standing next to those average height guys. He's got a tiny, the tiniest little beer belly. I know. <laughs> oh, my God. That's crazy. He's, he, oh, God, that's, that's so tall. That's really, really tall. Okay. So, after all that, he went to trial. Edmund Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7th, 1973. The chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, attorney Jim Jackson, had defended Frazier and was assigned to the Mullen case as well. So, now he also took a look on Kemper's case and his defense, which he offered... Um, as an insanity plea, he had his hands full, especially because Kemper's detailed confessions with his attorney had robbed him of any strategy except an insanity defense. Mm-hmm. But it would not be easy because Kemper had was so articulate and clear in the way he had planned and prepared for his fatal encounters. I mean, that's kind of hard to. Yeah. Nevertheless, he had once been diagnosed as a psychotic. And despite the psychiatric records that pronounced him safe, he clearly had not been cured. For no Jackson, shit. yeah, for Jackson, there was um, hope that this defense would work. I have a picture of when he uh, was walking into the courtroom with everybody. It says, "He tall." <laughs> oh my gosh! Look at the tiny little police officer. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. This almost does not look real. I know. It looks like it's photoshopped. But, I mean, you don't... Ed Kemper's waist 
mm-hmm. is at the shoulder mm-hmm. of this police officer. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I know. It really is. That's like he's insanely tall. Wow. <laughs> While awaiting trial, Kemper tried twice to commit suicide by slashing his wrist. He failed both times. The trial began on October 23, 1973, and three prosecution psychiatrists found him to be sane. Dr. Joel Fort had looked at Kemper's juvenile records to examine the diagnosis that he, when he was um, diagnosed as psychotic. He interviewed Kemper at length, including under truth serum, hmm. and... Uh, told the court that Kemper had probably engaged in acts of cannibalism. He did. He apparently cooked and ate the parts of the girl's flesh after dismembering them. That's not okay. Nevertheless, Fort decided that he had known what he was doing in each incident, was thrilled by the notoriety of being a mass murderer, and had been entirely aware that it was wrong. And he was. I mean, he turned himself in. Yeah. That was good enough for him. Uh, that was good enough to find him sane. California relied on the McNaughton. Mag- I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm going with what you said. Yeah. Standard for sanity that was used throughout most of the country. According to the wording, this standard held that a de- defendant might be found insane if, by reason of a disease or defect... He did not know what he was doing was wrong. Kemper clearly did know that his acts of murder were wrong. He had also shown clear evidence of premeditation and planning. One defense psychiatrist was willing to testify to insanity based on the product standard, which allows someone to say that the crime is the product of a diseased mind and a subtle difference, but that was not within the state's definition. So, Kemper's younger sister, Alan, uh, described the strange act she had seen her brother do, trying hard to show that he was abnormal, Mm -hmm. while Jackson fought uh, valiantly through cross-examination to get the prosecution's experts to admit that many of the things Kemper had done with the victims were clearly unnatural. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. They did, but generally stuck with their original evaluation. They also questioned the Atascadero staff's diagnosis of Kemper when he was 15. Having a lively fantasy world was not necessarily psychotic. Okay. Bullshit. Yeah, that that's a little more than having a lively fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kemper himself took the stand on November 1st. What the jury thought of this man who had so easily killed is not on record. Bummer. They didn't record what the jury said. That's weird. Yeah, I know. They had heard large portions of his detailed confession and already knew what he had to say for himself. He discussed what he knew about his mental state and tried to convince the jury that his need to possess a woman and his acts of necrophilia were clear indications of an unstable state of mind. He had already told his interrogators that he felt remorse and that he'd taken to drinking more and more to relieve the pressure, as one does. Mm -hmm. But he also described the sexual thrill he achieved from removing someone's head and had said that killing was a narcotic to him. He also described the feeling he had 
that two beings inhabited his body. And when his killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. He indicated the same thing had happened when he shot his grandmother. Okay. No. You don't think somebody could black out? No, I do, but I don't. I think he's just trying to come up with something. John Wayne Gacy did the same thing and tried to say he had more than one personality. They're just, I think, grasping at, at straws at that point. He, that, yeah. Because he never mentioned that before. That's true. The trial lasted less than three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> they had all they needed. Three weeks, y'all. <laughs> How many of his outrageous admissions were actually true is anyone's guess. While Kemper had admitted to cannibalism during Dr. Ford's analysis, he recanted that later, claiming that it was meant for an insanity defense. So, uh, I don't know. So there's no way to know which one mm-hmm. the lie was. Mm-hmm. On November 8th, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours, says Frazier, but um, before finding Kemper sane and guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder, Although Kemper hoped to receive the death penalty, he was convicted during a time when the Supreme Court had placed a moratorium on capital punishment, whatever, and all death sentences were commuted to life imprisonment. The death penalty became applicable only to crimes committed after January 1st, 1974. Hmm. He wanted to be put to death. Yeah. Everett says that the judge asked him, what he thought his punishment should be. It wasn't difficult to, for him to come up with something as he'd been thinking about this from the moment from his childhood. From I mean, from the very first moment that he thought about doing any of this. Mm-hmm. He told the judge that he believed he ought to be tortured to death. No such luck. Instead, he was sentenced to life imprisonment, sent first to the California Medical Facility State Prison in Vacaville. Vacaville. <laughs> Vacaville. Vodkaville? <laughs> I was just going to say, kind of sounds like Vodkaville. North of San Francisco for observation. And, and he ended up at the maximum security at Folsom. Okay. At one point, he requested psychosurgery, which involved inserting a probe into his brain to kill brain tissue and potentially cure him from his compulsive, compulsive sexual aggression. A lobotomy? Yeah. <laughs> His request was denied, possibly because authorities feared that he might then petition for release. He became a model inmate, helping to read books on tape for the blind. But when he went before the parole board, he told them that he was not fit to go back into society. In prison, he is reported to be the cooperative and kind type and would like to forget his past. While he readily participated in requests for interviews and self-examination, hoping he would help others to learn about offenders like him, he often disliked what some of his interviewers had to say about him. Yet, it's interesting to see how other professionals regarded him. So, the FBI interviews. FBI Special Agents John Douglas and Robert R. Ressler became a part of the Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico during its early years in the 1970s. And while they were on the road talking about um, local jurisdictions, they came up with the idea to visit prisons and interview notorious killers. Notorious killers. (laughs) That's that word. Criminal minds. 
Yeah. They hope the BAU. To- <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they came from somewhere. So, there mm-hmm. you go. I know. That's how it all started. I love that show. Who doesn't love that show? It's fantastic, really. Yeah. They hoped to include this information in the data they were gathering about crimes being committed by those unknown suspects on whom they were offering profiles. A database about the traits and behaviors of known killers could offer a substantial backbone for their teachings. Douglas and Ressler both write about these um, visits in their books, and they were generally the team who did prison interviews. If you want to understand the artist, Douglas writes, uh, look at his work. Yeah. Simple as that. What a cool job. I know. Sign me up. I know. I want to do that. They want you to go to school and shit. <sighs> Losers. I've already been to college. Your mom goes to college. <laughs> I don't want to go back. <laughs> I don't have the energy for that now. Mm-mm. So they contacted different types of offenders, including mass murderers, assassins, and serial killers, and collected data on eight, 118 victims including some who had survived an attempted murder. The goal was to gather information about how the murders were planned and committed, what the killers did and thought about afterwards, what kinds of fantasies they had, and what they did before the next incident. Like, they wanted to know what was going on. Like, what made you do it? In that that split second, what was going through your head? Why did you do it? So Edmund Kemper was among the 36 men who agreed to be interviewed, and Ressler had a hair-raising story about it. Ressler, who includes a photo of himself posing with Kemper, says that the at the end of his third interview at Vaudeville, Vaudeville. <laughs> okay, Vaudeville Prison, <laughs> Kemper made his move. In two previous visits, Ressler says that he was accompanied by someone else, but this time, this time... He thought that he had achieved a rapport with Kemper, so he ventured alone. They ended up in a small locked cell near death row for four hours. Wrestler finally used a button to summon a guard, but no one came. He continued to press the talk button, but still no one came. He says that Kemper was so sensitive to his psyche and believed that he must have appeared, like, apprehensive. Mm Mm-hmm. For he claimed that Kemper told him to relax and then said, If I went ape shit in here, you'd be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't you? I could screw your head off and place it on the table to greet the guard. Okay. (laughs) That's not okay. That's not okay. Why would... uh, Okay, I was going to say, why would you tell somebody that? But it's Kemper. It's Ed Kemper. Yeah. Wrestler mentally sparred with him, trying to buy time and hoping to give the impression that he had a way to defend himself. Eventually, the guard did come, and Kemper said that he had merely been kidding. But he never again went alone to interview him. Of course not. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I don't think I would do that either. Douglas, too, describes an encounter in Mindhunter indicating that he and Wrestler did several prison er- interviews over the years with Kemper. And they did. They're so good. Okay. Uh, he, he offers quite a bit of detailed information about Kemper, having found him to be among the brightest prison inmates he'd ever interviewed. 
So, his assessment. Douglas offers a detailed impression of Kemper. Indeed, he was surprised that Kemper had even agreed to talk with him. Douglas thought he was merely curious about them and their agenda. His first impression was that the killer was enormous. Of course. Y'all. I mean, how could you not see that? He could easily have broken us into. Holy crap. But it was also clear that Kemper was well above average in intelligence with a high degree of self-awareness. He apparently also liked to talk. Douglas indicates that Kemper talked with them for several hours because they had researched his file in detail and knew about his crimes. He soon realized that they were aware when he was attempting to deceive them. So he relaxed and he talked openly. How freaking cool would that be? It would be cool and cringe at the same time. He could be my prison pen pal. No, for fuck's sake. Come on, Brittany. For fuck's sake, Amanda. (laughs) Let it go. I can't let it go. Let it go. I can't. (laughs) One day. One day, you guys. No. She's not having a prison pen pen pal. It's just not going to happen. Don't squash my dreams. Okay, fine. Get murdered. Whatever. (laughs) He's in prison. (laughs) For now. He doesn't want to come out. That doesn't mean if the opportunity struck, he wouldn't take it. Once again, you're shitting on my dreams. Mm -hmm. Would you stop it? That's what I'm here for. Okay. (laughs) Payback. Payback. Okay. Just payback. Kemper seemed distant and analytical to Douglas and wasn't emotionally moved except when he referred to his mother's treatment of him. He believed that because he looked like his father, she hated him and used him as a target for her frustrations. Duh. Mm -hmm. He claimed that his mother made him sleep in a windowless basement because she was afraid he would molest his sister. In this dark place, he said he allowed his hatred of women to fester and grow. Understandable. Yeah. His mother made him feel dangerous and shameful. So he killed the only two family cats. As he grew up, his feelings only intensified, although he continued to live with his mother, the person he most hated. Because he had learned about psychological assessment in such detail, he knew how to describe himself in the proper psychiatric jargon. He knew all the buzzwords, said Douglas. What interested Douglas and Ressler most was the way in which Kemper saw what he was and what he was doing was a game. He figured out the best ways to put girls at ease and to make them believe they were safe. This type of information, Douglas writes, would start suggesting something important. The normal common sense assumptions, verbal cues, body language, and so on that we use to size up other people. It doesn't only apply to sociopaths. Listening to Kemper, Douglas summed up his approach and his ultimate goals. Manipulation, domination, and control. Yeah. Douglas, right. yeah. Douglas also, also pointed out the central role of violent fantasies for the sexual predator. Kemper had developed fantasies early in his life and which had given him a chance to rehearse for years the relationship between sex and death. To possess another person meant to take his or her life. Kemper's confession confirmed this as he stated that he wanted his victims to belong to him completely. Ew. 
He was, <laughs> it was his way of getting back at kids who had shunned him throughout his childhood. Ultimately, however, his overriding fantasy was to be rid of his mother. He told Douglas that before he started killing anyone, he would go quietly into his mother's bedroom while she was asleep and envision hitting her with a hammer. Mm-mm. Hmm. Yeah. Given what Kemper has said about her, Douglas felt that Clarnell had helped to make him into a serial killer who was, in fact, practicing on others before aiming his frustration at his true target. Even so, Douglas admitted that he had liked Ed. He was friendly, open, sensitive, and had a good sense of humor. He believed that Kemper's enjoyment was of dismemberment was fetish, fetishistic <laughs> rather than sadistic. All right. <laughs> fetishistic. Okay, psychiatric stuff. Lund was in the thick of the fear and hysteria in Santa Cruz as he assessed John Lindley Frazier and Herb Mullen. He was also called into the Kemper case and was allowed access by Kemper's defense attorney um, to the trial transcripts. To Lund, Kemper, and unlike Mullen or Frazier... Um, Kemper seemed like a man who had complete awareness of what was going on and what he was doing and had fully relished its per <laughs> perversion. Perversion. Yeah, he did. He believed that Kemper's sexual aggression stemmed from childhood anger and violent fantasies. Mm-hmm. Lund found Kemper's ambivalent relationship with his mother to be common among sexual sadists, and they generally bring the killing of their mother into their fantasy world. The act of killing becomes a powerful aspect of sexual arousal. Yeah, it does. I'm yucking the yum. (laughs) I'm totally yucking that. Kimber's anger began early, Lund writes, when he was separated from his father. He laid the full blame for that on his mother, although she had expressed concern about the lack of a father figure in his life. Lund also recorded incidents remembered by Kimber's younger sister. He would stage his own execution in the form of a childhood game in which he had her lead him to a chair, blindfold him, and pull an imaginary lever, after which he would writhe about as if dying in a gas chamber. Oh, my gosh. hmm Kemper had told Lund about his strong interest in weapons and his desire to kill women. Instead, he killed cats, as they all do. Hello, Luca. Mm-hmm. He also imagined such things as killing everyone in town and having sexual relations with corpses. Okay. While he apparently longed for a relationship with a female, he felt so inadequate that he decided he could only imagine in one form of activity with them, killing them. Okay. And so then he would have sex with the corpses. That's the only way he could do it. Okay. Yeah. Lund lamented that the the fact that the years Kemper had spent in a psychiatric institution as a boy had failed to prevent him from becoming such a violent and dangerous person. There may be a point in the sexual sadist development, he says, beyond which sexual and violent aggressive impulses are in <laughs> inextricably inextricably interwoven. Words are hard. Mm-hmm. Effective treatment would have had to have taken place much earlier during his childhood. Hello, mom, when you found the cat parts in the closet. Yes. Yes, it's difficult to identify such children because they are they generally engage in their fantasies secretly and deny they are guilty of the petty offenses they commit. 
Kemper is among those serial killers who have freely offered an extravagant amount of detail about his crimes and fantasies. Despite how disturbing his revelations are, we can be grateful that we know more about the development of a sexual predator from his accounts. Yes, we can. Yeah. That's it. That was so good. Wait, I have a current picture of him. Oh, show me. Okay. Current. Go look at current. Oh, no. Ha <laughs> I told you. No, <laughs> no. He did keep the stash, though. No, 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 no. Okay, well, there's he that. He didn't age well. He did not. No. Yikes. But he'll be there forever in Vodkaville. Uh, if I had to die somewhere, I guess Vodkaville would be a good place. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was so good. You did a great job. I learned things. Yay! Okay, cool. Thank you. All right. Well, if you liked it, yeah, go give us a review. Rate and review us. Get a sticker. Um, yep. We love all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, follow us on all our social media things. Um, and I want to shout out Amanda and Steven and Craig for art and editing and music because they're the shit. And don't forget that uh, next week will be our last episode before we take a break bitches <laughs> yes and we're gonna we're gonna have um a fun little festive thing going on so oh my god i want it now come back next week um and i guess we'll talk at you then peace out girl scout <laughs> i can't i can't <laughs> holla <laughs>